all you engaging people who love engaging literature, I'm so glad you've tuned in to talk today about Britt Bennett's amazing The Vanishing Half. As always, a couple of quick tips before we dive in. The lectures are going to be, as always, divided into three chunks. So in the first, today, we're going to talk about why read this book. We're going to talk about some important but brief uh, items about Britt Bennett's biography. And then we'll dive in to the book itself. We'll be talking about the title in particular, which I think is just it's a stellar title. Uh, and then we'll take a look at the very beginning of, of the novel. In the second part, we'll talk about the structure of the novel, which is really a feat. She's done just an amazing job structuring this thing. It's a really vast kind of sweeping novel that has lots and lots of characters and spans a lot of time. And she does it in a way that is grounded and deft and, and really kind of a masterclass in terms of structuring. We'll be looking at narrative voice and we'll be looking at this idea that Britt Bennett herself has talked about, about liking to write about the aftermath of an event more than she likes to write about the event itself. Finally, in the third chunk, uh, we will be talking about the quality of the prose, which of course we'll be talking about throughout, but we'll take a slightly deeper dive into the quality of the prose. Then we'll talk about how Britt Bennett is so good at withholding judgment. There are lots of different decisions that all of these different characters are making. and. Some of them, I think it would be easy to be very critical of decisions, and yet she does this amazing thing where um, she really is withholding uh, judgment, which allows the reader to develop empathy and to look at the decisions that all of these readers are making in, in a very um, sort of open and, and generous way. And then we're going to finish up with a couple of weaknesses. I am someone who, who uh, just sort of naturally is a little allergic to the idea of any bestseller. And Britt Bennett's books, um, The Mothers, was a huge success. And this book was a number one New York Times bestseller for a long time. You can tell just even from the cover of the book, it was a Good Morning America book club choice. And more importantly, uh, for my, in my opinion, it was named one of the New York Times best books of 2020. I believe that's the year it came out. It's a really astonishing feat, but we are going to be taking a look in the third chunk of this lecture at a few of the things that I think maybe are not exactly her forte. Okay, the first question, as always, is why are we reading this book? Of course, it becomes it's, it becomes very well recommended. Not only that, but um, Britt Bennett has signed a deal with HBO. It is in development, I believe, with Kerry Washington, uh, and it's it's very cinematic. It's it's a book I think that will adapt itself very well. Um, it's also an important voice. So we talk a lot in these lectures about the idea of of voice, of authorial voice, and. Most of the time, I mean that in terms of prose, in terms of the voice that any individual is adopting to tell a story and, and to do it through the medium of words. But it's also important on a political sense and, and, and just in, the, in, in a sense of being sort of a human in the world, it's important also to, um, to hear many, many voices. And this is, in fact, the voice of a black young woman living in the world today in the United States, um, having grown up in Los Angeles. And she has a lot to say about her experience. And I think, um, you know, the more voices that we can hear and the more worlds we can feel immersed in, obviously the more empathetic and the more tolerant and the more curious and more informed we will be. 
Um, but it's also important to recognize that this book is tackling a lot of really important questions. So you have questions of loyalty, questions of sisterhood, questions of maternity, questions of geography. We have Louisiana, we have Los Angeles, we have a brief stint um, up in Minneapolis. And um, we have big questions of sexual identity. We have questions of success. We have questions of neighborhoods. We have questions of redlining, systemic racism. So one of the very, very large uh, themes of the book is this idea of passing, is of light-skinned Black people as, as being able to sort of pass for white, which is, a, there's a very long tradition. And we have looked in the past at Nella Larson's book called Passing, which we looked at in the past when we were uh, reading Zora Neale Hurston's Their Eyes Were Watching God. So there is a long tradition of tackling this notion of at what point, um, you know, do light-skinned Black people want to pass for white and what does that mean for them? And so obviously race is a gigantic issue in the book, but I really think it's important to not um, just see this as a book about race. Obviously that's a large part of it, and yet there is so much more that is happening here. Happily, during some of my sleuthing, those of you who've listened to the lectures before know that I'm, I'm a bit of a literary groupie. I'm also a little bit of a, of a literary detective. And I did some, um, there's not actually a lot of information about Britt Bennett online. Uh, and I'll talk about her biography in just one second. But there is, um, she has an excellent review of Between the World and Me by Ta-Nehisi Coates when that book came out. Uh, and she, I believe in 2020, oh, probably not, probably earlier. I will come back to you with that information. But what she said at one point during her review of, um, of his excellent, excellent book, which was sort of a letter to his son about the experience of, of, of living in a black body in America, she writes, books by black authors are always asked to be more representative than they ought to be. This was in a, two, a 2015 New Yorker review of Ta-Nehisi Coates. So obviously I was totally wrong on the dates there. Ta-Nehisi Coates wrote uh, Between the World and Me before 2015. Looks like it probably came out then. Um, but the important thing here is, is, is this notion that when Ta-Nehisi, I mean, sorry, when, when Britt Bennett is talking about um, the weight and the responsibility that a book by a black writer takes on, it is important to recognize that, you know, as, as a white woman, I am reading this in part in order to understand the experience of a black woman. But I do think it's also very important to, to not, to, to, to try as much as we can, to not view this as, you know, sort of emblematic of the experience of, of many, many black women um, and, and to really respect the novel for what it is, which is a novel that is tackling lots and lots of different very important philosophical um, and, and sort of human-centered issues. Okay, so Britt Bennett um, was born in either 1989 or 1990. Again, there's not a lot of uh, biographical information about her. Wikipedia offered up 1989 slash 1990, which makes her either 32 slash 33. She was born in Southern California. She went to Stanford for English and then got her, her MFA at Michigan. She also studied at Oxford University. I do know that Stanford has a, an exchange program with Oxford, I imagine. That's where she studied at Oxford, but I'm not really sure. And one of the things that I do want to touch on very briefly is this idea, um, Britt Bennett, when she was at uh, Michigan getting her MFA, she wrote a um, an essay on Jezebel that got a lot of attention that was called, I don't know what to do with good white people. 
And essentially, well, there's a lot in that essay. I highly recommend it. Um, but, but one of the things that stuck out with me is this idea that um, as a young black woman with a voice, as someone who is, well, also just as a black woman in the world, that when she interacts with white people, there is this sense of, of um, white people wanting to sort of have her assuage their guilt or explain herself to them or make them feel better about the divisions in the world. And, and I think that that's an important piece of this puzzle as we are looking at her experience and, and what she is promoting as the experience of these fictional characters who are in part based on her family and her mother's experience in Louisiana. Um, you know, it's very important to realize that this is one woman speaking her part and that, and that we all need to, to come at this novel Yes, absolutely, certainly, um, as just a text to enjoy and to become absorbed in and, and to learn and to try to be empathetic, but also to not put so much weight um, on it as, as a singular voice. Okay, so now we're going to go ahead and dive in. So um, in terms of the cover, we've talked about this a number of different times uh, in discussing different books. So the author often has no control whatsoever over the cover art. For those of you who are not on the YouTube channel, I'm holding this book up. I like the cover. Um, I like these sort of blocky colors. I like the cover art. Um, I also really enjoy, you know, all of this kind of splashy, you know, we've got these circles, these prizes that she, um, and these book club things. Um, this is a book that that was hugely successful and I'm, I'm happy that it was and happy that um, she gets this well-deserved attention. Also, readers, um, you should know that authors tend to not have as much control over the title as you might like. I think some authors are very, very good at this. I can tell you from myself, in my brief writing past, I was not good at titles. And I'm just going to go out on a limb here. We're not discussing the weaknesses of this novel until part three. Um, but the chapter titles, um, I think, were maybe not the strongest part of this book. And so part of me wonders if perhaps titles are not Britt Bennett's um, really, really strong suit. She herself said in, in, I don't know if it was an interview or an article that I read, that The Vanishing Half was a title that was suggested by her, I don't know if it was her agent or her editorial team, probably a combination of all of those people. Um, and, and I think it's an excellent title. So this title is very strong for lots of reasons. And the, the idea of the vanishing half, I mean, you, you, the very first thing you think of is are these twins, you know, these lost twins. So the vanishing half in, in many senses is Stella. So Stella is the twin who disappears. She is the one who vanishes. But the title is much stronger than that. I mean, yes, there is that. And I like the spookiness of the vanishing part and, and the sort of pathos involved in losing a half of, of anything. But I also think there, you know, again, obviously you have the twins, but there are lots of other halves that are missing. So one of them um, is is all of the, the marriages and all of the couples where, um, you know, uh, where half of the marriage or half of the couple is, is vanishing, is missing for large parts of, of the novel, if not entirely. Then you have sort of this idea of the masculine and feminine sides of, of a person um, and, and whether or not a part of the, uh, you know, a part of your sort of sexual physiological self can vanish and sort of which parts and which halves. Uh, so there's this idea of, of, of having, you know, this very sort of binary concept of, of having both the male and the female. 
And this idea of, of being able to, in that case, sort of banish half. Of course, I'm talking here about Jude's boyfriend, Reese, who is a trans man um, and, and who is very, um, you know, th there are a lot of struggles that go along with that. So there is this sense of vanishing as sort of wanting to something to vanish. Um, then you have these sort of halves of lives that vanish. So for example, Stella and her daughter Kennedy both, uh, well, Stella has aspirations to go to college and that idea of going to college vanishes, uh, you know, literally overnight when her mother comes home and says, no, Stella, you're not gonna finish high school and you're certainly not going to college because you need to help me clean houses. We have a somewhat uh, similar experience. Kennedy does not want to go to college but then does end up later seeking out more uh, more of her education. So you have this sense of, of, um, of purpose or of education or of future as vanishing, sort of something that someone was looking forward to vanished. Of course, you also have halves of lives. For example, with Leon, who is their father, the father of the twins, um, you know, who he is he, killed early on. In fact, he's lynched twice. And this idea of, of, of losing half his life. I mean, he was young when he died. So I think, um, you know, it was probably more than half of his life that vanished. But you do have this sense of, of half of something at least vanishing, um, you know, all of a sudden. You also have East Coast versus West Coast. We have North versus South. So there are lots and lots of halves that we see throughout the entire novel um, that, are, that are vanishing. So this title is doing what any good title does, which is, you know, you have sort of something that's kind of interesting and gripping and grabs your eye and, um, you know, makes you start thinking. But then when you begin to sort of peel it apart, um, you're seeing more and more meaning and more and more significance. Okay, so now we're going to dive on in, going to um, just speed past all of this praise here. Again, this is a novel um, that, you know, it honestly doesn't even need too much praise here because following her first book called The Mothers, um, it, it was a book that people were just sort of, you know, voracious about and really excited about reading. So it's dedicated to Britt Bennett's family. Um, again, the sleuth in me, the, the literary detective in me, was a little disappointed that the acknowledgments or the dedication didn't sort of yield a little bit more about this woman, Britt Bennett. But I also really appreciate, um, you know, any need for privacy that Britt Bennett might feel. Okay. And then um, we come to this second sort of title page. It's the beginning of part one. We have part one, The Lost Twins, 1968. So I'm not going to dive too deeply into this because we're going to talk about it in part two when we talk about structure, but just this title page here is actually speaking to a very complicated, very complex structure. So we know that we're going to have different parts that are going to come at us. We know that they're going to have titles. It not, it's not just part one and then we turn the page. It's part one, The Lost Twins, and then we have this age in parentheses, not the age, but the year stipulated in parentheses. I think that was interesting because the, the book is certainly not, um, this whole part one is not tied to 1968. It begins there, but it, there's a lot of moving back and forth in time that I think is handled very deftly throughout, uh, throughout the novel. And um, I like The Lost Twins. That I think is one of the stronger of the titles of uh, the parts. So now we are gonna go ahead and dive in to the very first chapter. This is on page three, right at the very beginning of the book. 
The morning one of the lost twins returned to Mallard, Lou Laban ran to the diner to break the news. And even now, many years later, everyone remembers the shock of sweaty Lou pushing through the glass doors, chest heaving, neckline darkened with his own effort. I love this as an opening line. So there is a lot, a lot happening. Um, those of you who've listened to lots of lectures will already know this and you'll feel like I'm saying it constantly, but I do think it's, it, it's a good sort of tenet when you approach any novel, uh, which is especially one where the complexity of the structure and the sweep and the, the sort of epic nature of it is such that you really want to make sure you have your bearings. If you pay close attention to the first, um, the first line, the first paragraph, it can really tell you a lot about what to expect and where to sort of place your focus as you dive into the work. So this idea of mourning, first of all, you have a nice double entendre, this idea of mourning something, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G. Um, but you also kind of the flip side of that is that it is a mourning when this is beginning, which is a time of, of you know, everybody feels fresh, everybody feels new, everybody is hopefully, um, you know, sort of ready to face the day. So the fact that this book is beginning with a mourning is, is, is setting us off on this nice sort of optimistic tone. Um, we have the morning one of the lost twins returned to Mallard. So this is a, um, there are a couple of different things happening here. It's definitely not in media rest. We're not starting in the middle of a thought or a sentence, but there is a certain assumption made by this narrator that you as the reader are somewhat kind of in the know. When you have the lost twins returned to Mallard, there's a sense that you have heard of these lost twins. They are the lost twins. It's not a pair of lost twins, or it's not, uh, you know, the, the lost twins who had left, you know, blah, blah, blah. It's not, there's not a specificity to it because this narrator is trusting that you have already heard of the fact that these twins have been lost. Um, also Mallard and Lou Laban, we have these very specific place names, well, a place name, and then we also have a specific name. Uh, a first name and a, and a last name that give us a sense of, again, of, of, of being kind of on the inside. It's as if we already know where Mallard is and we know who Lou Laban is. Um, Laban, there's a lot of French in this book, which I love um, as, a, as a francophone and a francophile and a, 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 you know, a former student of French literature. Um, a lot of French because they are in Louisiana, but this in this case is Lou um, the Good. So you have this character of Lou and in fact he is very beneficent. He is, he supplies um, the diner as a place for the community to gather and to learn information like this. But also, of course, it is a place um, where Desiree is employed and, and, and really sort of finds a, a home and a community for herself. So we have Lou the Good is coming and he's, he's coming to the di design, diner to break the news. Um, and this idea of even now, many years later, is, is giving us this nice sense of, of this epic scope in terms of time. So we know that this is a story from 1968. And we also know that because this is there's this reference to many years later, there is this sense of, of, of the fact that we are, we are hearing about this from a point in the distant future, and we should prepare ourselves for this kind of long sweeping epic. This is not one year. We're not just gonna be looking at 1968. It's um, very much in the future. Also, this idea of everyone, right from the beginning, not only does the, the reader feel like she is sort of part, she's in the know, she's part of the community, but this sense of everyone, um, there is this nice sense of community. There's a sense that, that, that everyone there feels like they belong. 
So, and not only that, but everyone remembers the shock of him coming in. So I like the idea of, of everybody witnessing these things together and then everyone also remembering them. I also love the detail of, of the darkened, the sweat darkened shirt with his own effort. Um, there, there's something really great about uh, the specificity of detail throughout, but there is a sense of, of immediacy and that idea, it's not just that he was, um, you know, out of breath, which would have been cliche, or that he was panting or that he was in a hurry. Uh, there's a lot of nice showing that's happening here. Uh, the writer in me and um, the person who almost finished an MFA at Bennington is going to tell you that one of the best piece of, uh, pieces of advice I got was that when you are writing something, uh, you want to provide details to your reader that that reader could not imagine if she were not already there. So if you know that someone's coming into a, a diner uh, in order to break big news, there are lots of things that you could imagine about this person and about this di diner. But I think one thing you maybe would not have imagined is this sweat darkened neckline. It's an excellent detail for lots of reasons. It tells us that it's hot there. It tells us um, that he really is invested in what's happening. It tells us that these people who are remembering and this narrator in particular have a real eye for detail and have a good memory and have a very specific memory so we can trust them with these memories. Um, but those of you who fancy yourselves writers or are just interested in why good prose feels good, that is one of the reasons. If the writer can offer up a detail that you never could have imagined, then that reader, um, that writer is really doing her job. Okay, so then we have this next sentence. The barely awake customers clamored around him, ten or so, all the more would lie and say that they'd been there too, if only to pretend that this once they'd witnessed something truly exciting. This is such deft, masterful work. So one of the things that's happening here is, you know, this is an event, this is a big event for the people. So we have this idea of, of these twins and of this story as being really exciting and something that we are being treated to. But you also have, again, this sense of this community that isn't perhaps um, shying away from any sort of white lies, but that is really invested in being part of the community and being in the know. It's also um, this idea that, that this is a sleepy town, that Mallard is a place where you know nothing exciting is happening. These people are not witnessing a lot of exciting things happening. Um, and, and this, in fact, is one exciting thing that is taking place. Another thing that we aren't going to have time to discuss during the 90 minutes of discussion is the, the, the sort of echoes that I see throughout of Toni Morrison's Beloved. So one of them is this idea of the barely awake customers um, one of the, the, the beloved, the character in Beloved, is called the already crawling baby. And already crawling baby is sort of this tag, which is, that sounds like such a sort of dismissal of what is such an artful piece of um, detail on the part of Toni Morrison. But this already crawling baby, um, it, who is in fact beloved and ends up being, um, you know, the, the ghost in, in that novel, which we really need to take a look at here. That, that idea of this already crawling baby, t to my ear, this idea of the barely awake customers, there is, there is an echo of that here. And, and you could say that that is me reading into this something that, um, that Britt Bennett never intended. And you could tell me that Britt Bennett never read Toni Morrison and I would probably not believe you. Um, and, and, and to me, it doesn't, there's nothing about that that's you know, reductive or that's, that's sort of um, derivative. What I find here is this idea of, of uh, almost an homage and also an idea that 
when we're talking about um, really great literature that is in a tradition of, for example, in this case, Southern writing that has black people um, and their stories, uh, you know, at least somewhat in the fore, um, that, that having Toni Morrison echoing in your reader's mind is actually a very, very great thing. Okay, we're going to continue on a little bit more quickly. Um, we're going to look down here at the bottom. Lou spotted Desiree Vines walking along Partridge Road, carrying a small leather suitcase. She looked exactly the same as when she'd left at 16. Still light, her skin the color of sand, barely wet. Her hipless body reminded him of a branch caught in a strong breeze. She was hurrying, her head bent, and... Lou paused here, a bit of a showman. She was holding the hand of a girl, seven or eight, and black as tar. So there again, I mean, this is just absolutely masterful. So when we have, by the way, I did not begin spelling, I mean, pronouncing Desiree Vines in my mind. I listened to a BBC broadcast and there was a British woman who kept saying Desiree Vines. Um, I think she was maybe... Irish, this uh, interviewer. But in my mind, I was saying Vigne because I was saying the French version. I'm not exactly sure what you were saying in your mind. Maybe Vignes. I'm not sure. Um, it, it's one of those things, Vines, of course, or the French version of them. The, it, it's a very telling story. Desiree being a beloved, someone who is loved, someone who has desired a French name. And Vines also as being a French name. Um, I love the fact that this British uh, slash Irish woman just went right straight to the, the English translation instead of trying to struggle with Vigne or Vignes uh, or something less poetic. But the idea of Vines, of course, is very important and very significant because you have this idea of Vines growing together. You have an idea of Vines growing apart, um, Vines clinging to things. So it's a very um, important and I think a very well-chosen name Although Vignes, not that great. Not really just tripping off the tongue. Um, so, but we have Desiree, who is this loved person. And Im not importantly, but I think somewhat significantly and interestingly, the sister is known as Stella, but Stella's real name is Estelle. Um, so you have these French versions, um, which, which situates us very much in Louisiana and in the South. You have these French versions of names for these girls. French names for them. Um, and Stella, I liked because Estelle or Stella, both, um, you know, from the Latin have to do with stars, like stellar. So you have this idea of, of Stella as being, um, you know, a star, as being someone that you can sort of, you know, sort of see, you know, from a very, very great distance and you can imagine during the daytime. And, you know, it's 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 a, um, a presence that is ethereal and, and impossible to reach. So I, I loved the idea of Stella. It's also just a great name. I like Desiree as well. Um, but you have you have this idea that that not only is it an, a compelling name and, and a convincing one, but in fact is very significant. So we have Desiree Vines, and she's walking down Partridge Road. I think Partridge, you know, it's obviously the bird, but there is this idea here of halves. We have this idea of part and the idea of a ridge. So parts, of course, you know, you have these two parts, the vanishing halves, the vanishing parts, and also the idea of a ridge, which generally is going to be separating two things. So she's carrying a small leather suitcase. We know that she's returning, but she's not returning with lots and lots of fanfare. 
Um, and, and to throw in another uh, reference for you, this homecoming did remind me of Zora Neale Hurston's homecoming in uh, Their Eyes Were Watching God when, when the main character is coming into town and she has her long braid and it's kind of this very important homecoming. She's wearing her overalls um, and she is making a return to a town very much like this one. So again, these echoes of these huge um, black women writers, I think is, is very much to the credit of Britt Bennett here. So she's coming in with her leather suitcase. And then we have these two metaphors in a row. Um, they might be, let's see, uh, I'm looking to see if they're metaphors or similes. The only difference, of course, being that a simile uses like or as to form a comparison, whereas a metaphor does not bother with like or as and just simply says something is something else. So we have this idea of her skin. Um, her skin the color of barely of sand barely wet so I like it, it's very telling it's very evocative it's very interesting um, and there's also this idea of her hipless body reminding him of a branch caught in a strong breeze so I could quibble and say that we're mixing metaphors here first we have the sand and then we have this branch in a breeze but I actually think they work Partly because um, the, the the color of the sand is couldn't it's it's not very far from the color of a branch that you might be able to envision. So, in terms of color, which is one of the things that we're trying to get at here, you can imagine them as being somewhat similar. In my mind, it's kind of like a eucalyptus branch or some sort of a, a pale sort of sandy colored branch. Um, and again, I, I am very choosy, very, very picky about my metaphors and my similes because lots of times I think it's hard to pull them off. The very best ones will show us an important element in a new light or in a more vivid light. Um, but I think sometimes people are, they're sort of too far afield or they're too distracting or they feel kind of belabored. These, I think maybe because they're both from nature and because they both are dealing with the physical presence of this woman, I think they actually work very well, which is high praise from me because I am picky and certainly having two metaphors back to back like this is something that normally would not sit super well with me. Then of course we come to the end of the page. I love the fact that these last words are also the last of the paragraph which that's just uh, like a, a coincidence of typesetting. Um, I do not think that the publishers meant to have this paragraph end here um, necessarily, but I love the fact that it does. We have this large block of text and then down here at the bottom, we have after Lou, you know, the showman, after Lou's pause, the hand of a girl, seven or eight and black as tar. So, um, another point when we are talking about being a careful reader or, or of getting more out of what you're reading is not only to pay attention to the beginnings of things, but to understand that the last word of a sentence or the last sentence of a book, but certainly the last word of a sentence, it is extra significant because it, it, it is the word, even if you're moving on to a next sentence, it has the, um, it has a momentary sort of has a second or more to kind of um, germinate or marinate or whatever mixed metaphor you want to choose. But you have this sense of, of the word as carrying a little bit of extra weight because all of the energy of the sentence is leading toward this thing. And then also you have like a little beat where you get to kind of absorb it. Of course, in this case, black as tar is a, um, it's another simile, but it's also one that is very, very familiar 
So there's a lot that comes up when we have this evocation of tar. So one of them um, is obviously, well, maybe this is not obvious to you, but uh, the tar baby in the Br'er Rabbit stories, I think it's the second of the Br'er Rabbit stories, the tar baby is this baby um, that is made to catch the Br'er Rabbit and it is made of turpentine and tar and it's meant to look like a, like a small black baby. Um, and and all of the Br'er Rabbit books are are are, are stories are are really something that we can look at now and understand that they're really racist and and so this idea of black as tar is is evoking this whole attitude toward black people that for you know for the longest time was the way that America thought um, of black people as being entertaining and in this case it was about sort of tricking Br'er Rabbit it was about pulling one over on someone it also um just is 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 this sort of mass um it, you know it's the black body in this very kind of uh, uh you know denigrated kind of upsetting uh form and of course you have the idea of of the tar baby as entrapping Br'er Rabbit so it's used as bait um, it's used as a prop and, and ultimately sort of um, mischievous. And then for me also there is this idea of um, of tarring, tarring and feathering that, that comes up with tar. And just the idea of tar, it doesn't smell great. It's this um, this sense of, of, of something as being very, very sticky. Um, it, it is something that can help build things like a tarmac. You know, we have um, like macadam and tar together that makes asphalt basically. Um, but it is not... This is not something that is a positive thing to say, and certainly not, as we are about to learn, um, in a town like Mallard where being light-skinned is praised so, so highly. So at the end, we have this sort of climactic moment where we have this child who is coming back with Desiree, um, who is black as tar, and we have this real tension that is set up right from the beginning um, between this, this homecoming and this very exciting moment of the town, and what really is at play, what really makes the drama here, is simply the fact that this child has darker skin than her mother. So I'm going to leave it on that note. Please join us for the second and the third installments of this lecture to learn more about just the ingenious ways that uh, Britt Bennett structures her, her work. We're gonna take a look at narrative voice. We're gonna look at all sorts of great things about the prose. And then at the end, I'm gonna um, just, you know, just dive into some of the things that I thought maybe were not quite as strong as some of the other elements. So please join us uh, for parts two and three to learn more about Britt Bennett's amazing The Vanishing Half. Listeners, readers, all you engaging people who love engaging literature, welcome to part two of our discussion of Britt Bennett's Amazing The Vanishing Half. If you missed part one and want to listen to part one, um, go ahead and check that out, look for that. Um, but this is part two, we are going to continue our discussion. We're gonna talk about the structure of the novel, the narrative voice, and this notion of Britt Bennett liking to write about the aftermath of things more than she likes to write about the event itself. Okay, so the first thing we're going to do is dive into structure. And the way we're going to do that is by looking at, again, this title page. Those of you who are on the YouTube channel can see it right here. Um, it's simply the very first page of the text. It says part one, 
The Lost Twins, 1968. So I mentioned this in the first part, which is that right from the start, right from this page, we have this very clear sense that this is a complicated text. So we know it's going to be many different parts. Turns out that it is five different parts. And that's significant because sort of classical drama, um, and by classical, I don't really mean Greek drama, although it does harken all the way back to that, um, but certainly Shakespearean drama is set up in five acts. So we have five parts to this, um, which are, are, are um, it, it, again, it's sort of a nod to some of these literary traditions within which I think Britt Bennett is doing a very good job of operating, both of sort of um, using them to her advantage, uh, but also in updating them in very important ways. So you've got these five parts, um, and here I'm going to list the titles of them. This is one of the things um, Britt Bennett herself said that The Vanishing Half was an idea that her um, her editorial team came up with and or her agent, probably all together. But the titles, The Lost Twins, I think is fine. Uh, but then we move on to Maps in 1978, Heartlines, 1968, the Stage Door, 1982, and Pacific Cove, 1985-86. So a couple of different quibbles that I have with those. Um, Pacific Cove is the name of the uh, soap opera, of course, that Kennedy stars in, and I feel like it gives a little bit too much weight to that. The stage door, I love the idea of a door um, and the idea of things, of, of the different performances that are happening in this novel because there are lots of performances. We have Kennedy as performing. To a certain extent, um, we have uh, Reese who's having to perform different uh, sort of gender stereotypes in different ways in order to be accepted as a male. Uh, and then we have, uh, of course, Kennedy's performances. We have Stella's performances. We have lots and lots of different performances that are occurring. Heartlines, um, I like the idea of, of the palm reader, um, but it felt a little bit tacked on and it felt a little bit, a little bit kind of constructed, a little manufactured. So then again, to have the um, Heartlines as a, um, a title for an entire section, I felt gave it a little bit too much weight, uh, this, this palm reading section. Maps. Um, I do think that geography is very important, but um, again, it seemed a little bit kind of both too vague on some level and, and also um, it, it, like I wanted a little more from it, but it also seemed a little bit too too vague. So and then, of course, again, the Lost Twins, I think was I think that's an excellent, um, you know, an excellent part title to kick us off with. I also had a little quibble with the um, the years that she is including in these parentheses underneath each one because in fact the novel um, it, it moves very deftly and very well through time um, but I think these kinds of anchors that she is giving us um, are a little bit misleading because we think we're going to be reading just about 1968 and instead um, or just about 1985 or just about 1982 when in fact um, one of I think the strengths of the novel is the way that it moves through time. Okay so Right from the beginning, um, we have this, this title page thing here that is telling us about the complexity of structure. But what I think the real, the real sort of strength of this complex structure is the way that Britt Bennett weaves together a very complicated narrative with a lot, a lot, a lot of different characters um, without ever really sort of having the reader feel ungrounded or lost. 
uh, whether we're talking about time or whether we're talking about a character. It's really impressive. This is a very large cast of characters. It's tons of geography. It's over a large expanse of time. Um, I think you can argue that there are perhaps too many characters and there are too many different geographical locations and there is perhaps too much time, but I think that, that she handles it very, very deftly. I, the, the criticism I would make of, of that is that we don't get sort of deeply enough into each one of the characters or the times or the geographies. It, it, it does invite you to feel that you wished you had more of these characters. Again, I, I don't want a longer book. I don't want a sequel. There are lots of interviewers who are like, when's the sequel coming out? When are you gonna you know, develop the character early? When are we gonna learn more about what happened in Minneapolis? I don't actually want any of that. Um, I actually think what would have been, you know, if I'd had my druthers, maybe would have been um, a slightly less wide scope. And actually, then it does say that in fact, it used to be much, much longer. And through the editorial process, they sort of winnowed away, um, you know, whole entire sections and whole entire, you know, maybe there were hundreds of pages in Minneapolis that didn't make the final cut. So back to the complicated and very, very well done structure here. We're going to look at two examples. One is the idea of the death of Leon, their father, and the other is the way in which our uh, main character Jude finds out about Stella. We're going to begin on page 10. And I think, so one of the, one of the concepts that I, I talk about in the lectures is this idea of pacing. And pacing is very difficult. And she is making it look so, so easy in this book. Pacing is simply um, the, the, the sort of the way a, an author is meeting out information. So information is given to you as a reader in sort of dribs and drabs, or it's given to you all at once. And it might be given to you, you know, in big chunks or small chunks, uh, and it might be clustered together or very far apart. She does a little bit of all of these and does it very well. So if we look at page 10, kind of right in the upper middle of the page. Her father had been so light that on a cold morning, she could turn his arm over to see the blue of his veins. But none of that mattered when the white men came for him. So how could she care about lightness after that? So good, such an amazing sentence. So we're, we're um, at the very beginning of the book, only on page 10, and we have this kind of bomb that is dropped here about this idea of, of um, him as being so light-skinned and it, which is very prized in Mallard. So then we, again, we have this kind of bomb of this idea, which is very vague at this point. It's simply, you know, a, a dependent clause in this last sentence. Um, when the white men came for him, so how could she care about lightness after that? So there's this idea of lightness, first of all, as not saving anyone, which is a very important tenet at the beginning of the novel. But there's also this sense of, um, of this specter of this horrible trauma that happened that comes up again and again. And at this point, it's just this mention. Okay, and then if we look at page 26, kind of top middle of the page. His own parents, this is about, um, this is about uh, Leon. His own parents had set their sights more reasonably. They'd run a speakeasy on the edge of Mallard called the Surly Goat. The more pious in Mallard would later trace the tragedies to that sinful business. Four Vines brothers, none of whom loved, lived past 30. Leon, the rent of the litter, the first to die. 
I love this so much. So you have this idea of his parents, you have this idea of ambition, you have this idea of um, the, even this slight ambition as then leading to tragedy. And th this idea of these four brothers, you know, w what we're focusing on most in the book is the, the fate of these two twins. And so if you then have this idea of four siblings, so you have like a doubling of twins on some level, if, if we're looking closely at sort of the experience and the tragedy and the difficulties faced by the twins, you can imagine that being multiplied by the four of them. And in fact, all four will die. And there's something so poignant and so well done about Leon as being the runt of the litter, which is evoking lots of sympathy in anyone. Runts are always so cute. You know, it's always the Wilbur um, from Charlotte's Web. It's always the, the, the sort of prized um, being because of vulnerability and because of because of cuteness, frankly. Um, so you have this, well, not always, that's probably a very sentimental view of runts, but that's that's how I feel about them. So you have Leon, and I love even syntactically how she's doing this. Uh, Leon, comma, the runt of the litter, comma, the first to die. So you have this huge message that's coming in this kind of fragmented, kind of staccato way. Leon, the runt of the litter, the first to die. There are no verbs. It's um, it's choppy. It's sudden. Uh, it, it's it's just incredibly well done. So, uh, but again, you have in the beginning we know the white men came for him. In this second mention, we know that that he was the first of four brothers to die. Um, and you can imagine that we are meant to believe that they're all going to die at the hands of white men. We know one of them died in a chain gang. Uh, it's I don't think it's made clear how the other ones die, but um, it, you know they die young and it's tragic. So you can you can extrapolate from the two deaths that we do uh, learn about. Okay, next we're going to look at page. What is this page? This is page thirty six. So pages thirty six and thirty seven. We've jumped from ten to 26 and now to 36. Uh, and again, she's meeting out this information about the death of the twins' father. So here we are on 36, we're at the funeral. The twins had always seemed both blessed and cursed. They'd inherited from their mother the legacy of an entire town because she came from the, the founder. The founder was one of her, um, her forefathers. And from their father, a lineage hallowed by loss, Ooh, sorry, hollowed by loss. Very important, um, but, but very, I think, intentional and interesting uh, slippage there. I mean, on my part, but also the fact that she chose hollowed. Um, and when you're talking about lineage, lineage, hallowed would often be the word, but I think her choice of hollowed was certainly not accidental. Or if it was, it was a genius of an accident. Four of Vina's boys, all dead by 30. The eldest collapsed in a chain gang from heat stroke. The second gasped in a Belgian trench, the third stabbed in a bar fight, and the youngest, Leon Vignes, lynched twice. By the way, here I was saying that I didn't think we learned what happened to the other two. Obviously we did. Um, one of them fighting in the war and one in a bar fight. So I'm not sure that we can extrapolate quite as, um, as neatly as I thought. And yet I think um, certainly three of the four may have been uh, at the hands of white people. And the youngest, Leon Vignes, lynched twice, the first time at home while his twin girls watched through a crack in the closet door, hands clamped over each other's mouths until their palms misted with spit. Awful. I mean, just awful. Um, and then, of course, again, you have this sense of like, wait, we still haven't heard the whole story because we understand that he was, he was killed. He was murdered twice. 
which is is astonishing. Um, and we see this first, it's, it's this horrible trauma that happens with these girls because they witness this uh, taking away of their father, which is how it's first described, and now it's much more graphically described. But we know at this point still there is more to come. And sure enough, on page 37, across the way here, so this is why the men were after him. Uh, he claimed Leon had written nasty things to a white woman. Leon couldn't read or write. His customers knew that he made all of his marks with an X. But the white men stomped on his hands, broke every finger and joint, then shot him four times. He survived. And three days later, the white men burst into the hospital and stormed every room in the colored ward until they found him. This time, they shot him twice in the head, his cotton pillowcase blooming red. So this is, I mean, we could talk for 90 minutes about just these passages and just this incredible structuring. Um, but you have uh, the increasing number of details from the beginning uh, to that second mention and now this third mention. You see what the girls have seen. And, and interestingly, this second part that happens in the hospital, the girls would not obviously have been witness, or at least not eyewitness to that. Um, but you do have these details, of the, these, the specificity, and it's actually so beautifully and kind of eerily done. This idea they shot him twice in the head, his cotton pillowcase blooming red. So shot in the head and then um, blooming red, you have this, that, that ED sound, um, you have that repeated in a way that is, I think, echoing the shots. You also have the cotton, um, which I think, you know, you have to think a little bit about cotton and cotton picking and the importance of, of slave labor really in building our entire country. And then this idea of blooming, you know, we began the entire novel with a mourning. There was this sense of, of possibility and growth and, and even with the return of, of one of the twins, this idea of, of, of the beginning of things. And in this case, um, the blooming that is happening is, is death. There's a nice disjuncture there between this idea of something blooming, which is a positive thing, and the idea of, of losing his life. Um, and then actually the funeral is not, I misspoke, the funeral is not uh, until page 66. So we have the funeral that happens another 30 pages from now. So again, there's this very artful, very uh, careful meeting out of information that is, um, you know, I'm, I'm pulling out the example of the father's death, and yet you could do this with, with any number of different things that are happening. And, and it is so much to Britt Bennett's uh, credit that she's able to weave all of these things together. You have these brief mentions, but they're specific enough and they're, they're um, you know, enough of a bombshell that you do not forget them and and she has them she has them sort of spaced out nicely so that it's you know we're not learning about this 300 pages later um and having forgotten things it's 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 spread out but it's over this kind of 66 uh page span and what's significant too of course is that the photograph that is taken at the funeral is one of the things later that becomes um, a touchstone and, an, and a, a point of proof that we see that is offered up to Kennedy to prove that her mother is in fact black. So there is this sense of, of, of this funeral photograph as ending, the funeral ends the, the sort of life of this father and the story of this Leon Vines. But, but that photograph, the memento of that day is what in fact um, brings us to the next generation. So it's just incredibly well done in terms of structure.
It's been great to talk about um, about structure because it's also, of course, allowing us to look at prose. And we're going to continue with this idea of prose uh, as we talk about one more structural item, uh, which is the, the question of how uh, Stella and Jude become reconnected. So if we look at page 158, this is when Jude is doing her catering at the cocktail party. She's catering and she is having an interaction with Kennedy, who is a guest at the party. A white man in a tweed jacket asked for wine, and Jude uncorked the bottle of Merlot, hoping the girl might leave. But as she began to pour, she heard exclamations filtering in from the foyer. The girl turned to her glumly. Fun's over, she said, and drained her martini in a gulp. I love going back, I mean, I love rereading in general, but I love going back and looking at something like this. This is only page 159, we're not even quite halfway through the book, um, but this is Kennedy reacting to Stella in a way that we will understand much better later. But it's fun to go back and look at her saying this, you know, fun's over, she said, and drained her martini in a gulp. We know later that Kennedy um, is a bit of a wild child and we know how she feels about her mother. So it's fun to, to have that information and then go back and take a look at this. Then she sent her, set her empty glass on the bar and started toward the entrance where a woman had just walked in. Mr. Hardison was helping her out of her fur coat and when she turned, passing a hand through her dark hair, the bottle of wine shattered on the floor. So this is so strong. I mean, there, not only do we have this excellent moment, which is going, we're going to come back to time and again, this idea of, of um, having dropped the wine at this fancy party, but you also have this idea. So if we had the blooming red of the blood, we had that liquid that was spilling with the, the father's death. Here we have this red wine that is going to ruin the carpet. You have this nice kind of echo. I also love um, the fur coat becomes, you know, it's a gift from her, uh, from her husband uh, to Stella. But you have this idea too of, of, of being hidden and of being hidden inside someone else's skin, which is so interesting. It's such a great symbol and kind of metaphor for what's happening. She's literally, you know, surrounding herself. It's a floor length coat in Los Angeles, which is, you know, kind of weird. Um, but you're, she's, she's, she's feeling protected. It's a gift from her husband. Um, and, and yet you're also sort of hiding inside the skin of this other being. And then um, she turned. So there's this idea of turning, which she has turned away from her family. Um, but of course, she's also turning so that uh, Jude is able to see Stella for the first time, passing a hand through her dark hair. So this idea of passing, um, you know, there are lots of different ways you could have said that, or you, meaning Brit, um, but this idea of passing as a verb here when we first see Stella is so genius. So, you know, it's a, it's a very sort of straightforward, a very quick interaction that happens here. And yet it's loaded not only with significance, but with these details that when you stop and sort of pick them apart are really um, rewarding and revealing because they are so multi-layered. Okay, then we're gonna pop to page 233. This is another time when this incident is mentioned. Um, so up at, at, right after a space break on 233, this is Jude thinking. It couldn't be Stella. For years after that Beverly Hills party, Jude had thought of little else. Sometimes the woman in the fur coat looked exactly like her mother, down to the curve in her smile. Other times she was only slender and dark haired, a passing resemblance at best. Again, here we have this passing, this word passing, which is so important. 
I don't read things electronically, but I should always have a copy, um, an electronic copy, because it would be very cool to do a search and see how often the word passing comes up in this book. But the fact that, it, that the, the word is coming up in both of these instances where we are first, where, where Jude is first seeing Stella and wondering if in fact this could possibly be her long lost aunt, it's just absolute genius. And again, you know, this is 80 pages later that we're having the same instance come back up, but, but there's no sense as the reader of kind of not remembering the scene or not remembering who was there uh, because it's so well done. Okay, then we're gonna look at 243. Um, I love this part. So this is when, when we have Jude and Kennedy are getting to know each other when, uh, when Jude is working at the theater. Under the dim mirror lights, Kennedy plopped into the worn leather chair. Donna wanted to skin you alive, she said. What? Jude said. After you ruined her rug. God, you should have seen her running around like you'd slaughtered her firstborn. My rug, my rug. It was a riot. Well, not for you, probably. Okay, I'm not done reading the section, but I have to stop to pull these things apart a little bit. So first of all, we have um, uh, Kennedy is looking into the mirror. She's not, in fact, looking at Jude. So there's this idea of doubling. There's this idea of seeing, you know, sort of an identical twin kind of moment because she's looking at herself in the mirror. Um, there's also this idea of her being under lights. Um, not like an interrogation exactly, but we're, we're going to be learning important information here. Um, and this idea of Donna wanting to skin her alive is so violent. And again, we had this idea of, of this fur coat that Stella was wearing then, again, the skin of an animal of someone else. So this idea of skinning her alive is so, I mean, it's, it's bringing to the fore the idea of skin, but also this terrible violence. Um, and Jude rightfully is like, what? Um, and then she said, after you ruined her rug, and then this is so significant, God, you should have seen her running around like you'd slaughtered her firstborn. So I see in that another reference to Beloved because in that you have infanticide. So this idea of slaughtering the firstborn, you know, you have a biblical tradition, but then you also, to my mind, have this strong echo of Toni Morrison. And then this idea of it was a riot. I mean, this is like, this is, on some level, Brit Bennett, it's, it, it, it almost should be heavy-handed, and yet it's not heavy-handed at all. It was a riot, you know, rioting and the notion of speaking up as a person, um, you know, of, of color is so central to, to the way that voices are heard that for her to say it was a riot, I mean, this is Kennedy just just using sort of ultra powerful uh, message after message after message in a way that is that is really significant. Okay, and then down here she says, what's your name anyway? Jude, like the song, like the Bible. So the um, I love the idea here of, of this kind of mistake that happens. And one thing that's very significant is the, the idea of Hey Jude as a song. So Jude in the Bible, um, you're, you're thinking of Judas, you're thinking of someone who betrays. And in fact, we can read Jude as a Judas figure because she does in fact reveal to Kennedy that her mother is black. But you also have this idea um, of Judith as being this very strong woman who decapitates a man in the Bible in order to be, um, in order to save her people. So you have this sense of, of Judith as, as Judith, as heroic, but Judah, which also means gift from God, but also Judas. So you have all of these different sort of um, biblical 
uh, resonances that come with the name. But then Kennedy, of course, is sort of like reducing it to this Beatles song, Hey Jude. But if you think about that song, the idea of um, remember to let her under your skin and then you can begin to make it better. So there's this very, very cool reference to this Beatles song, um, Hey Jude, that, and then, you know, Kennedy goes on to call her Hey Jude over and over um, in the novel. But there, there is that sense of, of, of remember to let her under your skin and then you can begin to make it better. This, this idea of skin and this idea of becoming, you know, moving under someone's skin, of being in their skin, of understanding their reality, which is so artfully done. It's so, um, it's so excellent. So, and again, that is just like this quick mess, this passing, no pun intended, um, this passing reference to that one incident with the rug and with the wine. And again, that was a huge, um, both a huge plot point because that was when Stella and uh, Jude, you know, are, uh, first encountered one another. And when Jude understands that, that Stella, that her aunt, who vanished is potentially in her orbit um, and, and it's it's something that that our uh, trusty narrator here our author is returning to again and again and again in these very very artful ways okay we're gonna look at the last time on 248 kind of up at the top of the page here and this is Stella thinking which is interesting because and you'll note um, one of the strengths we aren't going to have enough time to take a close look at this is the narrative voice so this is a very good example um, of free and direct style which is a third person narrative voice that slips very easily into the diction and the interiority and the, the sort of feelings and thoughts of all of the different characters it's a really really useful and and in this case, I think a very well-chosen narrative voice because it does allow us to stay grounded and it allows us to move from all of these different characters inside the characters in a way that, that helps us keep straight, you know, who we are with and, and what this person is all about. Interestingly, there not only is this really excellent third person uh, narrator that is this great free and direct style, but you also have this kind of Greek chorus idea at the very beginning of the of the book, there's this idea of everyone having heard this news all at the same time at the diner. There's very much this sense of, of a Greek chorus, this idea of, um, of of the whole town, you know, this small town that kind of knows everyone else's business and is reporting on this business and is passing around the, uh, the information. It is very much that kind of Greek chorus that kicks us off, which is excellent. Okay, so, but here on 248, we have Stella, she says, There'd been a disturbance earlier, a black girl spilling some wine on the rug, which had for a few minutes stolen the attention of everyone at the party. So great. I mean, it's very much like um, the, everyone's attention having been stolen at the diner by the arrival of this, of when Desiree arrived. Everyone's um, at the party, everyone's attention was stolen by, by what happens with Jude when she sees the return of her aunt. Okay. Um, sudden attention of everyone at the party. Stella had just arrived, so she'd only seen the aftermath. A charcoal girl frantically mopping an expensive Merlot out of an even more expensive rug. It's, this is so, it's so well done. So she, this charcoal girl, there's this very dismissive thing that, um, you know, you see her as someone who's very colorist. You see her, you know, she's passing for white and yet you see her as being so, or not, and yet, 
I mean, largely because she is, you see her as really dismissive and disparaging of people who are darker skinned black people. I also love here this idea of aftermath. Um, Stella had just arrived, so she'd only seen the aftermath. So Britt Bennett has talked quite a bit about how she likes to write about the aftermath of things. She prefers that over the writing of a crisis itself. And I love that concept. The idea of, of, I mean, there is an adage in writing circles, which is like, show up late and leave early. We don't want a lot of preamble and we don't want a lot of analysis of something. We really want the pith. We really want the, the sort of juicy part of what's happening. But I love this idea of the aftermath of something as when, um, when the exciting stuff is actually happening or when the truly revealing part of the narrative is going to happen. I love the mention of aftermath here as, as kind of a controlling idea for the entire novel because a lot of what Britt Bennett is doing, it's the aftermath of, of the twins having left, the aftermath of their father's death that is so significant. It's the aftermath of this party. And when Stella mentions it, um, it's only the aftermath. She's referring to this very specific aftermath in the scope of the party when of course the reader understands that the aftermath of that moment is in fact going to affect her entire life because the aftermath will be her niece informing her daughter that they are cousins and in fact that Kennedy is black. So it's just an absolutely masterful, um, you know, sort of weaving together of all of these different, sorry, that was a dog over here. Um, one of the four dogs giving a little shake. I think if you listen carefully, you might be able to hear two of the four um, snoring away. That's not um, some bored participant sitting in front of me. That is, in fact, the snoring of the dogs. But you have this incredible structuring of this novel that I think adds an enormous amount to, to the way that you can have such a broad scope in terms of geography, in terms of time, and in terms of character. And as the reader, it's very, um, it's, it feels very grounded and it feels very satisfying. And I just think it's incredibly well done. So tune in to part three of this lecture uh, where we are going to dig into a little bit more of why the prose is so excellent and uh, the incredible way that Britt Bennett allows us and herself to withhold any kind of judgment, uh, even when characters are making sort of ethically dubious decisions. And then a couple of the points where I think that Britt Bennett's amazing novel, um, you know, just a couple of things where I think um, maybe are slightly less accomplished than some of the other bits. So join us for part three and thank you very much for listening. Welcome to part three of our discussion of Britt Bennett's amazing The Vanishing Place. Um, if you hear a slight rhythmic pounding in the back, that might be my husband on the treadmill directly below us. If you hear uh, the occasional snore, that's probably a dog. A lot of commotion here uh, on this morning of recording part three, but the show must go on. So uh, today we're gonna dive in a little more and talk about the amazing job that Britt Bennett does here with point of view. The first point of view we're going to take a look at is on page 190. Uh, if you have your text in front of you, that's great. If you don't, that is also fine. I will uh, keep you well grounded. So on page 190, 
what we have is um, uh, Stella's point of view. And one of the characters I think that you could find fault with is Stella, because Stella has made this choice to pass as white. And yet the, the way that Britt Bennett deals with Stella, the way she allows us to see inside uh, of Stella's choices, allows us to understand uh, that, that really, and my argument today is really very much that the system in which Stella operates is really the problem here. Her, Stella's choices are in fact very logical, and Britt Bennett does a very good job of discussing why this is in fact the case. So on 190, we're going to take a look at this free and direct style and how this language that is used when Britt Bennett is discussing Stella and is talking about Stella is, it's interesting, there's a, there's a certain distance from it. It's a little bit reserved, it's a little bit cool, it's a little bit analytical, less kind of passionate, um, more sort of orderly than some of the other uh, characters in the book. So in the middle of page 190, we have Stella saying this. She trailed off, but Stella could feel, fill in the rest. When she'd first passed over, it seemed so easy that she couldn't believe she'd never done it before. She felt almost angry at her parents for denying it to her. If they'd passed over, if they'd raised her white, everything would have been different. No white men dragging her daddy from the porch, no laundry baskets filling the living room. She could have finished school, graduated top of her class. Maybe she would have ended up in a school like Yale, met Blake there proper. Maybe she could have been the type of girl his mother wanted him to marry. She could have had everything in her life now, but her father and mother and Desiree too. So a lot of really important things are happening in this uh, passage. First of all, we have this repetition of this word past, which we saw past and passing and past in, um, in other, in past passages um, that we looked at in, in the first and second installments of this discussion. But it is very important here. Here we have this, this true uh, sense of past as in passed over, which is interesting because passed over, um, you can think about that in some, it, points in other pieces of work passed over might have that um, the connotation of dying, which is a very interesting usage here. Um, as opposed to Nella Larson's passing, um, they, they don't use that same preposition in quite the same way. Um, but, but Stella's making a lot of different important arguments here. One is that it, this happened the first time she passed for white. It, it happened, um, you know, it was very sort of happenstance. It just sort of occurred. And she realized, in fact, that this was something that she could do. So then there is this sense, and I again, I love the title of this book for this very reason. There are all of these sort of halves that vanish here, like half of her life, if she had been able to pass, you know, as, as um, a white person, that this whole uh, existence would have been open to her. So you have this kind of binary that keeps opening up and halves of it keep vanishing. Then of course, um, there's this idea of touching base uh, structurally with that amazing scene where the father is taken out and lynched not once but twice. Uh, and then we have this idea of her potentially having finished school and having graduated at top of her class and having gone to a good college. So again, another one of these vanishing halves. But what's happening here um, that is so important along with sort of laying out this argument is the fact that Stella is aware of the fact that if things had gone differently for her, and in this case, the what if is if her parents had decided to do what she has decided to do, um, th that her family would have been intact. So we're gonna go on and, and continue to look at one of the arguments, but one of the main ones, the main sort of criticisms that you can level against Stella is the fact that passing for white meant that she had to leave her family behind. 
So we're going to look at page 250. Here is another argument on the part of Stella, sort of at the bottom of page 250. But when had Stella based her decision on an obligation to family? That was heart space. And maybe it had always been her head guiding her. She had become white because it was practical. So practical that, at the time, her decisions, her decisions seemed laughingly obvious. Why wouldn't you be white if you could be? Remaining what you were or becoming something new. It was all a choice. Any way you looked at it, she had just made the rational decision. So um, speaking of decisions, I also love the fact that Britt Bennett makes Stella into this statistician. Um, at one point, any skeptical readers would have picked up on the opening sentence uh, of the cocktail party scene where Stella and, and Jude so artfully meet. There, there is a, a line at the beginning of that that says that the probability of this happening was remote but not impossible. So, or something like that, I'm paraphrasing. But the idea of, of, of Stella as being this incredibly rational, not passionate person, this is someone who always makes decisions with her head, it's very compelling because we have um, this sense of her having made a very practical decision, a decision that, that sort of happened um, whether or not she wanted it to initially, and then the practical side of her understood um, that opportunities would be much richer for her, uh, no pun intended, if she, uh, if she were passing as white. Okay, so then we're moving from Stella's take to Jude's take here. So on page uh, two, what is this, 266. Sometimes you could understand why Stella passed over. Who didn't dream of leaving herself behind and starting over as someone new? But how could she kill the people she, she, who'd loved her? How could she leave the people who still longed for her years later and never even look back? That was the part that Jude could never understand. So there's um, a lot of work here. Part of it is reiterating this argument that is sort of pro-passing <clears throat> while also keeping in mind, you know, the, the major problem with that plan, which is that you would be separated from your family. Um, again, we have this idea of the road not taken. We have this idea of a vanishing half, um, which I love the consistency of, of that metaphor throughout the entire book and all of its different valences and all of its different iterations. But in this case, it is very important for us to have um, Jude, who is a very dark-skinned young woman who is grappling with this betrayal on the part of her, her aunt, um, to have some compassion and to have some understanding. It's very compelling. You know, I think I'm not a, I'm not a lawyer, uh, but I would imagine that this is a very compelling way to make a case, which is that, you know, you have one of the people who could be most incensed uh, state something that is in fact very compassionate and understanding. So not only do we have Jude's take on this, do we have this kind of sympathetic, compassionate, sort of uh, musing, not musing, but consideration of Stella's decisions, but we also see Kennedy looking at this. And Kennedy um, is actually a very good embodiment of this idea of, of starting new, of sort of not liking the direction you're going in, and in fact changing that direction. So very much like her mother, you know, she's constantly reinventing herself, which Again, I think it's an amazing achievement on Bennett's part to take a look at the ways that different people are inventing themselves here and not just um, this idea of, of passing as white on the part of Stella. So we have this uh, at the bottom of page 292, uh, a scene where Kennedy is sort of grappling with her mother's choices. So Kennedy says, why don't you want me to know you? And then we move to Stella. 
she'd imagined more than once telling her daughter the truth about Mallard and Desiree and New Orleans, how she'd pretended to be someone else she needed because she needed a job. And after a while, pretending became reality. She could tell the truth, she thought, but there was no single truth anymore. She'd lived a lie split between two women, each real, each a lie. So this is something that Britt Bennett has brought up in a couple of different interviews, which is this idea of sort of at some point when Stella has built this entire life and spent more of her life um, as a white woman than as a black woman, you know, at what point does that become reality for her? And I think this is one of the very most important aspects of the novel, which is that, that you know, skin color and, and any sort of judgment based on skin color is entirely arbitrary. So you have, um, you know, this woman who can exist in both of these worlds and we see her choosing the world that is that is much more full of opportunity and ease and and freedoms in this country that we live in but it is important to remember that this is an entirely arbitrary choice and it's a very important thing to realize that on some level and and bennett does a very good job of of showing this not just in the novel but also when she's speaking about the novel um she does a very good job of of pointing out that these lives are equally real. This is not a, um, you know, Stella's life is not an entire sham. You know, in some ways you can argue that in fact it's it's a lot of performance, but in fact this life that she has built as a white woman uh, in, in other ways you could argue is more real than her existence as a black woman. So um, we're gonna look at page 332 and 333 as kind of our last, last look at this issue. Of, of how Britt Bennett is so good at, at helping us uh, see Stella's decisions a, um, in a compassionate light. This is, um, we're down at the bottom of page uh, 332. This is a, an interaction between Jude and Kennedy, and it's an interesting argument that is made. So Jude says something about how um, Kennedy would fit in perfectly at Mallard because she's a light-skinned Negro and that would work well for her. Kennedy says, I'm not a Negro. Jude laughed again, this time uneasily. Well, your mother is, she said. So? So that makes you one too. It doesn't make me anything, she said. My father's white, you know, and you don't get to show up and tell me what I am. It wasn't a race thing. She just hated the idea of anyone telling her who she had to be. So we have Kennedy's voice here. Um, I like the idea here that, that we really do hear Kennedy's voice. It wasn't a race thing. This is a very different tone and a very different kind of verbiage, a different syntax than her mother was using. But you also are like, it wasn't a race thing. Of course it's a race thing. The argument that Kennedy makes is interesting, but ultimately sort of spurious. Listen, it wasn't a race thing. She just hated the idea of anyone telling her who she had to be. She was like her mother in that way. If she'd been born black, she would have been perfectly happy about it, but she wasn't. And who was Jude to tell her that she was somebody that she was not? Nothing had changed, really. She'd learned one thing about her mother, but what did it amount to when you looked at the totality of her life? A single detail had been moved and replaced. Swapping out one brick wouldn't change a house into a fire station. She was still herself. Nothing had changed. Nothing had changed at all. 
So at the end there, we do hear her protesting a bit much. This idea of, of her saying it's not a race thing, nothing has changed, nothing has changed. It's, it's an interesting argument because in fact, for Kennedy, nothing has changed. Nothing is revealed um, that, that, that substantively makes a difference in her life. But of course, the reason why that is the case with Kennedy is because Kennedy is existing in a white world. So if we um, think back to American history, which is definitely not my forte, but you know there, there was um, the, this, this one drop rule that essentially said that if a person had any black blood, that that person was black. And it's um, you know throughout the course of, of just absolutely horrific um, history of slavery in this country and its aftermath and its legacy, um, you know, everyone understands that to be black in this country means fewer opportunities. It means discrimination in all sorts of systemic ways, um, all sorts of microaggressions, all sorts of economic inopportunities, whatever the opposite of opportunities are, discrimination and, and um, lack of opportunity. So I think it's, a, it's an important argument to be made. And you can say, in fact, that this doesn't change anything for Kennedy, but for me, what that really actually throws into relief is the fact that it, it, it's, it's a very small change for someone who's already operating in the white world. Um, whereas if someone had been operating, um, you know, in, in the black world and suddenly found out that they were a white person who had access to, um, you know, to much more opportunity and much less racism and discrimination, that would have been an entirely different uh, sort of switch. So I think it's very interesting what Bennett is doing here in making these various arguments and, and they're very compelling and very well done. It doesn't feel polemical. It doesn't feel didactic. Um, it feels in fact very organic that Kennedy would be thinking these thoughts or that Jude would uh, forgive her aunt except for the fact that she's left behind her family and that Stella would feel pragmatic about her choices. So I think this is really one of the strengths of the book. As promised, I wanted to give a quick sense of a couple of the things in um, in the book that stuck out for me as maybe not quite as strong as some of the other elements of the book. And I think in large part, uh, when I went back and looked at these things in isolation, I, I do think part of the problem was that most of the book is so outstanding that these things stood out a bit for me. Um, mostly, I, I was pulling out bits of prose, which we are going to look at, that to me felt a little, a little hackneyed or a little sentimental. Uh, I think sometimes Bennett falls into that trap uh, that even excellent writers fall into where they restate something that doesn't need to be restated. It's almost as if they need to trust the reader a bit more um, or trust themselves that they have made their point instead of kind of restating for the reader. Uh, so we'll look at a couple of these examples. On page 75, this is fairly early in the book. Oh, no pun intended, because we're about to start talking about the character named Early. Um, it's a little bit early in the book, and we actually have just gotten to know Early, and we're just kind of settling in with him in some ways. And we have this sentence um, in the middle upper part of page 75, where the narrator, who is in the um, interiority of Early, again, this is an example of that free and direct in, uh, discourse where the, the narrator is a third person narrator, but is able to sort of enter into the mind of the character. So in, in Early's sort of consciousness, the narrator says, the world worked differently than he'd ever imagined. People you loved could leave and there was nothing you could do about it. 
One of my problems with this is that it felt a little bit too soon. It felt like we hadn't quite earned it. We didn't quite know early well enough um, to have him make a pronouncement like that. And on some level, it felt a bit too packed. It felt a bit too, a bit like an overstatement. My sense was that um, early was figuring these things out. And, and you know, if this was a truism that he actually uh, had already come to gather and believe in, that's fine. Um, but she had already shown us, I think, relatively well in the text that he was mistrustful and um, there was enough information at this point to understand that he probably uh, understood that lesson on some level, that there wasn't really a need to state it in quite the way that she had. Uh, on page 119, we're going to look at a different example. So there were a couple of them uh, that we're going to, I think two in a row here that we're going to discuss uh, that have to do with dark and light. And, and I like that because I like the idea of really teasing out a theme. And yet it felt a bit heavy handed in these cases uh, because I think, you know, the, the theme of darkness and lightness is already so well developed that I'm not sure that we need it sort of overtly stated. So um, on 119 here, my other problem um, with this is that it, it it was jarring for me because I wasn't quite picturing what the what what Bennett was picturing, um, and and you'll see what I mean in just a moment. Whenever the reader feels, whenever the reader is reading along, and she all of a sudden realizes that there's a disconnect between what the the vision that the author has and uh, you know what what the reader has in her head, it's it's jarring and it takes you out of of the process of reading, out of the flow. So. Um, down at the bottom, right before the space break, she's she's kissing this, um, Jude is kissing this young man in uh, the stables, and she says, in the dark, you could never be too black. In the dark, everyone was the same color. Which is interesting um, because I, in my mind, when they were at night in the dark kissing in the stable, there was still a decent amount of ambient light. And, you know, my, my sense about that, like, I don't know, maybe it was a moonlit night or maybe, you know, it was not a moonlit night um, that was happening in Britt Bennett's imagination. But when I imagined it, I did imagine enough ambient light that you would be able to see the other person, you know, not perfectly, um, but I imagine there's maybe a barn light for the horses or some, there's some kind of light that's shining nearby enough um, th that it wouldn't be completely black to the point where you wouldn't be able um, to distinguish uh, between somebody who was very, very light-skinned and someone who was much, much darker-skinned. So that, for me, I, I didn't mind the dark, you know, the, the, the sort of the idea of it, and I think the idea of underscoring this dark versus light, um, uh, you know, dichotomy and this binary, I think that's fine. I don't know that it's totally necessary. For me, in this instance, it's because there was that little jarring disconnect. Okay, we're gonna look at um, 30, page 137. This is another example of underscoring this darkness versus lightness. Uh, it's a final paragraph on 137. All over the city, couples doing what they were doing. Teenagers kissing on blankets at a beach, the ocean rolling in black, newlyweds fumbling in a hotel room, a man whispering into his lover's ear, a woman holding a match to a slender candle her face glowing off the kitchen window across the city, darkness and light. So 
I didn't mind the darkness and light thing, except that um, I hadn't really clued into the fact that that's what she was doing. So, um, you know, you have some of these people were in darkness, some of these people were in light, but but it wasn't sort of obvious enough to me that I understood that what Bennett here is doing was, was sort of this dark versus light thing until she states it at the end. And by then I was a little, it was a bit late for me. Um, and up until that point, there's certain dilation that's happening here. So we're going from learning um, more specifically about, you know, the characters in the book. And then and then the scope is sort of widening even further to see over the city. And, and my sense about that, um, sometimes it works very well. I'm thinking of a very specific scene in Amelie, um, one of my favorite movies, where um, Amelie is imagining, actually, how many people across the city of Paris are having an orgasm at that moment. And the camera pans to all of these different people. And, I, you know, in, in that case, it seemed more organic, um, also more orgasmic uh, than what is happening here. But I think here you have a, um, it, it feels a bit unnecessary, maybe because the scope is already so wide. I'm not sure we need to go a lot wider with this kind of dilation of all of these disparate images of teenagers making out, you know, on beach blankets and women lighting candles. Um, it, it just didn't quite hold together for me. Okay, on 147, um, <clears throat> at the end, this this to me just felt a little sentimental, a little hackneyed. Um, it's right before the, um, the space break here. A body could be labeled, but a person couldn't, which first of all, I'm not sure that's true. Um, and the difference between the two depended on that muscle in your chest, that beloved organ, not sentient, not aware, not feeling, just pumping along, keeping you alive. So to me here, the writing is getting a little bit away from her, a little out of control. Um, it, it just wasn't, um, I'm looking here quickly. This is when um, Reese is helping uh, helping Jude with flashcards for um, for her anatomy class that she's taking. But, but this idea, um, it, again, it feels a bit far afield. It feels like it's not helping really progress the plot. Um, there's, I'm sure anyone who has any writing experience has heard the term or the advice, murder your own darlings. And I used to think that just meant like edit things, like just be pretty ruthless with your editing. But I think that, um, you know, the advice, as I understand it a little better, is, is to sort of anything that you think is particularly lyrical or, or, or artful, um, those are the things that probably need to be axed. And it is no... Um, it's no coincidence that a lot of the things that I'm sort of, um, that I'm taking a, a bit of, um, or that I'm, that I'm not appreciating as much of the rest as the rest of the novel, a lot of these pieces are coming at the end of a, of a, of a section. Lots of times it's right before a space break. I think sometimes Bennett is, is overstating things at the end or she's wanting to make um, kind of a sentimental, um, you know, sort of, move at the end of these things in order to kind of tie the section together and and my sense is that probably and this is a very good writing adage um one of the best that i learned during my mfa program is that it's it's great advice to essentially just get rid of every single last sentence of an early draft uh, meaning every last sentence of a paragraph or even every last paragraph of a chapter because there is that temptation by writers at the end to think, oh my God, I don't think I've gotten it quite across, or what if I haven't made this clear enough, or what if there's not quite enough oomph in this section? And so then there's this temptation to over explain or to be a little bit more sentimental 
or um, you know, to, to try to expand the point that you are making. And, and generally speaking, um, those endeavors are not as solid as the rest of what people have written. Okay, we're gonna look at two more examples, 309. Um, so uh, this was just another one of these situations. Again, it's right before a space break um, where, where it just seems things like are getting a little out of control here. Uh, this is when Kennedy is thinking about France. Even France was essentially foreign to her, not because he was black, although that perhaps underscored it, but his life, his language, even his interests were apart from her. Sometimes she stepped inside the little closet he'd converted into an office and watched him scribble equations that she'd never understand. There were so many ways to be alienated from someone, few to actually belong. So first of all, the, the syntax at the end there gets a little clunky for me. It feels kind of not quite parallel. There were many ways to be alienated from someone, few to actually belong. I think this idea of um, being alienated from someone and belonging to someone, because those, those prepositions are not parallel, I think I was like, oh gosh, like it was a little bit painful for me because there wasn't a parallel preposition happening there. But I also think, I mean, this is a perfect example. If she were to get rid of that last sentence, there were many ways to be alienated from someone, few to actually belong. It would have been so cool if she instead, if she got rid of that and instead ended on, um, sometimes she stepped inside the little office he'd converted into an office and watched him scribble equations that she'd never understand. So much better. Um, Britt Bennett, if anyone who knows Britt Bennett's out there and she needs an editor, just kidding, I'm sure her editor is great. But um, I do think that there is this, this uh, temptation on her part to kind of overwrite. It would have been much cooler if we had ended on the idea of not understanding the equations because um, that really would have stood in, I think, much better for the point that she's making instead of kind of, um, you know, hammering home this, uh, this concept. Okay, and then um, the last example, well, the penultimate one that we're gonna look at here is on 336. This is, again, Kennedy. And she has the photograph of her mother and uh, Desiree at the, uh, at the funeral. This is fairly late in the novel and we know Kennedy well. Um, we've gotten a good sense at this point. She already knows the truth. She's reinvented herself several different times. Uh, and on 336, we have um, in the middle of, it's not right before the space break, but it is in that paragraph uh, right before a space break. She says, the blonde boys smiled at her quizzically, handing it back, it being the photograph. It meant nothing to anybody but her, which was part of the reason she could never get rid of it. It was the only part of her life that was real. So she goes on from there, but I'm like, is it? Is it the only part of her life that's real? I mean, on some level, you can argue that it's, it's, it's really not real. And in fact, she herself argues that earlier in the novel with Jude. So um, sometimes, I, you know, um, I think there is a, um, a, a really important emphasis that needs to be placed on things that are actually true, um, especially when you're making an abstract statement like this. The reader's like, wait, is that, is that really the only thing in her life that is real? So I think there, there's, again, that's that kind of overwriting or that mellow um, drama that is sneaking in here at the edges. So there is a sense of... Um, of that being, um, again, a little bit of overwriting on the part of, of Britt Bennett. 
And then um, it, at the end of today's section, uh, this last this last third part of three, um, we are going to talk about the close of the novel. And I must admit that the final paragraph is a paragraph that I do not um, I do not love entirely. So we have this beautiful ending of the book. Uh, the grandmother has died, the matriarchy, and it's this beautiful thing where. Um, <clears throat> The, you know, Jude has returned once again. You have this nice bookend, Jude has returned. But instead of ending with the community or with Jude, um, we have this shift toward Jude and Reese, which to me felt a bit tangential. I, I did like Reese as a, as, a, as a character. I liked their relationship. I liked a lot about what was happening between the two of them. And I liked the optimism in their relationship and everything that the relationship stands for. Um, but, but I think this, uh, Ending with this paragraph, again, I might have taken that that uh, piece of advice, that excellent piece of writing advice, which is to get rid of the entire last paragraph of, um, of any draft. I'm sure this was a very late draft, so that would have been painful. Uh, but we're going to take a look at this very last paragraph now, and then again in just a second when we discuss the close of the novel. He unzipped her funeral dress, folding it neatly on a rock, and they waded into the cold water, squealing, water inching up their thighs. This river, like all rivers, remembered its course. They floated under the leafy canopy of trees, begging to forget." So there are a couple of different things that are happening here. I like the idea of him helping out of the dress, and I actually like the idea of folding the dress, just because that says so much about Reese um, and, and the care that he has taken of her, and the, the care, in fact, that Jude has taken of him throughout the novel. I love that part of it. Um, the idea of, of wading into the water, it was interesting. The idea of squealing, the fact that both of them were squealing, that was interesting to me because I do think of squealing as something that, that a, a, a female person would be more likely to do than, than a male, which is kind of a weird thing for me to say. But I, it, because of that sort of resonance for me, I was like, why is she, why, why is squealing this idea of, um, you know, they, they seem to me like it seems like a certain underscoring of uh, a, a certain sort of more female part of um, of Reese, which is, I think, an interesting thing to be underscoring. And I might be alone in that, uh, but it does squealing is a, it's a big verb in this. Uh, it's really, you know, one of the only verbs besides waiting that we're getting with them. So there's a lot of emphasis on it. And if you stop and think about it, I, I think it's a um, it's just an interesting choice. And then this idea of the river is fine, but again, it's a, it's a fairly heavy handed symbol, um, you know, in my opinion. So you have this, this big symbol and you have this big verb and we're ending with these two people who I think are, are I would like to have seen the novel end with, um, you know, maybe a little bit more with the community as a whole and not so much with the relationship between these two. So it's kind of crazy to do this, like sort of, um, you know, this criticism of something that's at the very end of a novel that I think is so strong. Um, so we're going to take a look now at the ending as a whole, because I do think um, there is a lot that uh, recommends it. It's really, um, it's, it's beautiful in lots of ways. In some ways it felt to me like we were a little far afield, um, but I do really appreciate the way that, that uh, Britt Bennett has taken this really vast canvas, this gigantic scope, and she has been able to sort of um, not tie it all up in a neat bow, but she has been able to really bring a lot of these threads together. 
So of course, at the end of the novel, uh, the grandmother dies. We have the matriarchy. Um, Adele has has passed on, and um, we have everybody gathering together and in in sort of a very sweet and kind of beautiful um, you know uh, literary moment. We have Reese coming back to the hometown, and we have. Uh, Jude, who is now in medical school, returning to Mallard, um, you know, in lots of ways as, as sort of a, a hero, you know, as someone who has surpassed expectations, certainly. Okay, so at the uh, sort of middle of page 388, I'm just going to go ahead and read the close of the novel. At the cemetery, she watched Reese lift her grandmother, early lined up across from him, four other pallbearers behind. Across the open earth, the priest blessed the body, his hand tracing the sign of the cross through the air, and like that, her grandmother was lowered into the earth. She rubbed her mother's back, hoping that she wouldn't turn around. She couldn't look at her face, not right now. During the service, she'd held her hand, imagining another woman sitting in that pew, Stella worrying her fingers along a strand of rosary beads, joining her sister in silent grief. At the repast, the town gathered inside Adele Vignes's house, hoping to catch a glimpse of Mallard's lost daughter. She was in medical school now, they'd heard from her mother. Half the room expected her to walk in wearing a white coat. The other half was skeptical, figuring that Desiree Vines was exaggerating. How could that dark girl have done all of those things Desiree said? I love the fact that we have everyone gathering again. It's, it's very much a bookend. We're coming very much full circle. In the beginning, you have the arrival of Desiree and her dark daughter. In um, you know, we have um, the announcement of that to everyone who is listening at the diner, and here we have everyone gathered again. Uh, you know, at another meal and another place of, of here in a home, but they're all they're all gathering together to eat, um, and you have again the 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 return of this dark girl uh, uh, to to Mallard. But they did not find her amongst the dead. She had slipped out the back door with her boyfriend, holding his hand as they ran through the woods toward the river. The sun was beginning to set, and under the tangerine sky, Reese tugged his undershirt over his head. The sun warmed his chest, still paler than the rest of him. In time, his scars would fade, his skin darkening. She would look at him and forget that there had ever been a time he'd hidden from her. He unzipped her funeral dress, folding it neatly on a rock, and they waded into the cold water, squealing, water inching up their thighs. This river, like all rivers, remembered its course. They floated under the leafy canopy of trees, begging to forget. So I have mixed feelings. I love this, um, you know, this uh, anti-penultimate paragraph here where we have everyone gathering and we have the return of... Um, of, of uh, Jude, we have the return of her in, in, in victory that's sort of very optimistic and, and speaks volumes about the ability of this, this line of women to succeed and to surpass expectation. Then we have this shift, which I do like very much to this idea of Reese and Reese as, um, you know, fully coming into his own body and this idea of, of healing and the sunlight. And of course, um, anytime you see a river in any sort of piece of writing, you should think of time um, and you should think of death and you should think of continuity. So it's nice that she is ending with them entering this river and, and, and this idea of time passing and this idea of, 
um, uh, of things being different, but also being the same, which is kind of the nature of rivers. Um, but this idea of begging to forget is so interesting because I feel like then it is pushing us toward what I think is a very sort of optimistic ending. And then at the end, we have this idea of, of wanting, in fact, to, to sort of disown their heritage or wanting to, um, to forget who they were um, in the past. So part of me um, feels like there may be, um, you know, maybe we went in a direction that for me was not quite as satisfying as if we had sort of stuck with this idea of, of the town of Mallard and this idea of this matriarchy. But I also really applaud Bennett here because she is, of course, um, you know, tying together and um, really sort of treating us to this idea of the younger generation as as being something very different and as as um, moving forward optimistically in their lives in a way um, that that really is um, about fresh starts and it's about possibility and opportunity. So, in lots of ways, you can argue it's a, it's a very strong ending. So with that, we're going to close this third section of this um, discussion of this incredible novel, The Vanishing Half by Britt Bennett. Um, it's really an important book, and I think she has done an amazing job of, of dealing with a very large scope. I hope that you got a lot out of it um, listening, and I hope that you return and dive into another book with me soon. Readers, thank you so much for tuning in today. The lectures really are the lifeblood of the Fox page, but you should really go to thefoxpage.com. There are five minute recommendations where I will predict in about five minutes whether you should or should not tackle Ulysses, or maybe why you shouldn't be so snobby about the recent uh, Leanne Moriarty beach read. There are also talks, no rereading required, on old favorites like Are You There God It's Me Margaret or Frog and Toad, which is quite frankly a literary masterpiece. There's also this very cool thing where you answer a couple of questions and this cool wheel spins around and spits out a recommendation that I think might be exactly what you need and it might be something that stretches you a little bit. Come and check out thefoxpage.com. Thanks for listening and mostly happy reading.